The following program contains mature subject matter not suitable for young viewers and graphic images that may be disturbing. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. It is Wednesday. Wednesday, Wednesday does not sound nearly as good as Friday, 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 but here we are on a Wednesday episode. I am the Fat Man Farmer, and I do not have Wee Wild Woman with me yet again because we are still in the middle of lambing season. We had two this morning, even. That's why I'm getting a later start than I would like to. Anyway, um, yes, I know. I need to put my seatbelt on. Okay. So I digress. I'm on the road heading to Andy to pick up from the food bank today, and we have a metric crap load of potatoes it looks like. I don't know, I won't know till I get there, but mm, pigs love potatoes. Cows can eat potatoes. I found out today, sheep can eat potatoes. So we're going to try feeding some of them to the animals. Uh, chickens will eat potatoes, but not nearly as much as they'll eat other things. So we'll probably be giving a lot of this stuff away if it's still edible. Today, I was going to talk about good God, our road sucks. Tax money at work. Today, I wanted to talk about why homesteading fails or, um, you know, people get the wrong impression of what they want to do. So, some of you may know, I consult both permaculture, homesteading, and a variety of things on the side as well. If you don't, I do. Um, and a lot of times... People have the pie-in-the-sky, starry-eyed notion that I'm going to open a farm and it'll be self-sufficient and that's what I want to do. And I want to do that as quickly as possible within the first year. I can tell you that's kind of an unrealistic goal. So not to be the doom and gloom, but I can tell you from our experience, from consulting with others and... Um, you know, even with the network that I have of farms and contacts and friends, and this is not just in Indiana, this is all over, of the, the reasons that people fail at farmsteading or farming, not farmsteading, well, well kind of, so it's farming and or homesteading, so I guess it is farmsteading, um, and, you know, ways that you can prevent that or maybe don't get such a... Um, disillusioned view of what's going to happen. So let's start out with the number one thing that people always say is, I want to own, I want to buy land and be self-sustainable. Well, that's all well and good, but how are you going to get there? Well, I'm going to raise chickens and, and you know, sell eggs. Okay. Well, how much is your land? How much is your farm? How much are the inputs? How much are your fuel, your utilities? Now, you know, get your one year's worth of expenses. And, you know, this is why you would have a normal job. And if you don't have a house yet or a homestead or a farm, you know, do the numbers. Figure it out. You know, there's lots of Googles and calculator searches that will show you what the mortgage is, what the insurance would be, what the utilities may run on that size house. And, you know, go from there. You know, also, what are your food bills? Because I can tell you, 
if you think that you're going to buy property and be 100% self-sufficient within the first year, that's another mistake. And I'll tell you why and some ways that you can you know, negate some of that. So, let's say you know your expenses each year are, let's just say, $50,000. I don't know what it's going to be. We were looking at real estate prices. Um, they come up on some different ads and pop-ups. And a farm with 10 acres, three bed, two bath, one outbuilding, um, which was a, a garage, um, two or three car garage, I can't remember, that was detached from the house. Um, in our area was listed for $489,000. Now, when we bought ours, which was 32 acres with the same size house and bedrooms, and we had multiple outbuildings, um, went for far less, like one-third of that. That's how prices are become. And the interest rate currently is, I want to say, 6%, 7%, something like that. Whereas we got in at like three, and that was high when we got it. So it may be under three. Senior farm boss does the financing part and the bills. Um, so, you know, let's just say your expenses for everything are $50,000 a year. Now, one of my good friends, Darby Simpson, who does the Grass Fed Life podcast and classes and things, told me something way back when and he says Excel never lies which if you start thinking that you know you're $50,000 and how many chicken eggs do you have to sell to get that now current prices in our area are anywhere from $2 a dozen to $6 a dozen just depending on who's selling them where you're getting them at retail or um, you know from the farm kind of stuff and that's a lot of eggs to be able to come up with that. So let's just say it's $5 a dozen. You know, that is 10,000 sales you have to make in a year. That's just for the bare necessities. That's not car payments. That's not feed inputs. That's not buying the chicks. That's not, you know, cover or any of those things that were going to go into the chicks. Just $50,000 for your normal expenses without anything else. That's a lot of eggs. Where's your market? Who are you going to send to? Well, I'm going to sell to grocery stores. Well, I can tell you, you have to have contracts with grocery stores. And most of them already have contracts in place uh, with bigger chains. And they can undercut you because they don't have the same expenses that you do in these large poultry houses. Um, one of my ex-wife's family runs one of the biggest egg producers in the country. And seeing their chicken houses and what their expenses are and everything, you just won't compete with their, you know, dollar or less a dozen eggs. Um, so, hold on, I gotta go get gas, I'll be right back. On the road again, here we go, on the road again. And I'm back, I'm not a singer. Anyway, so we're talking about chickens and being able to be self-sufficient and self-supporting. That doesn't include farm owner's insurance because you got to have that as well because you will be sued more than likely or you have to have that in order to sell at different places. Um, you know, there's a lot of things to think about. So 
it's easier to cut your costs or cut your expenses than it is to try and produce more to keep up with what your lifestyle or what you're doing currently. So you got to think, you know, that's if it's just the necessities that you're paying for, that's no birthday presents, that's no vacations, that's no wait, money to improve the farm, to grow. It's just the bare necessities. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of eggs to be sold. I mean, you look at people like Joel Salatin, who you know does the Anybody Can Farm, and he's absolutely right. He's also built his career on you know farming and teaching and educating and books, but it wasn't as, you know, from the get-go, he wasn't that successful. He's built his name over decades, and when somebody wants to buy a Joel Salatin bird, they pay the premium because it's from him. Are they willing to pay the premium because they don't know you? You don't have that reputation. You haven't built that credibility. You haven't established yourself, and that doesn't happen overnight. I was one of those people. I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience that I was one of those people who thought, we're going to get a farm and we're going to be profitable. We're going to pay off the farm in five to ten years and we'll be able to quit our jobs. And, yeah, that's that's not the case. Yes, I run the farm full time, but we could not do it without my wife's income. Nor could we do it on two incomes and still have the farm because there's a lot of things that get done during the day and upkeep and maintenance and animal care and feeding and watering and you know all of those things that I do during the day while she's at work. Now, we were able to go from two incomes to one income about the time we started homesteading and that was because it was getting to the point where we were going to have to get second jobs just to survive because of daycare and childcare expenses. So, we looked at it, even though I was making more money at the time than she was per year, it was better for me to quit and stay home than it was for her because I didn't have a degree. I had like two classes short of a degree, had 20 years of experience in pharmaceuticals and engineering. Um, I had established a pretty good reputation for myself for uh, sales driven for one of the companies that I worked for. I love sales. Sales is my passion, one of them. Anyway, so, but she had a degree, and if for some reason, you know, the companies we worked at shut down, because we were both working at the same company, or, um, you know, for some reason something happened, she was more likely to get a job than I was because of that degree. I feel differently about degrees now, later on in life, than I did initially, but that was, that was one of her, her, at, I don't want to say attributes, but the, the positives about her continuing to work. She had an office job. It wasn't hard. It wasn't stressful. It wasn't hazardous. I mean, it was stressful, but... And, you know, she had insurance, which is another thing that you're going to have to cope with is if you think you're going to be self-sufficient. Those routine t- trips to the doctor, the dentist, the eye doctor, yeah, you know, that's all going to be coming out of your pocket without insurance. And in some cases, it can work to your advantage. For instance, I went to the chiropractor recently for after Betty destroyed my back. And, uh, you know, after a couple of times, you know, I was going and it was like $50 a visit. And he readjusted me, fixed some things, gave me some stretches, and then I was done. When I talked to somebody else who was going to the same chiropractor without insurance, it was only $30 for a visit based on cash. Now, the difference being that he had to file all of this paperwork and everything with the insurance company, and it was a hassle, 
And I don't know that he charged more for the insurance company, but that's what the negotiated rate with the insurance company was, was $50 versus a negotiated rate of $30 with someone who was paying cash. Go figure. So, okay. So we're going back to, can I get started and, and do anything? I just used chickens as an example. So, you know, don't set yourself up to fail by thinking you're going to pay off the, the mortgage and be debt-free and be profitable and, and everything your first year, or even the first five years, or maybe even the first 10 years. Um, you know, when we do the, the taxes every year, we get more tax benefits for having the farm because we itemize everything, and a lot of that input that comes from my wife's uh, salary goes into the farm, so a lot of that is tax deduction. So here's another one. Depending on what you're going to dive into, you know, pigs, sheep, alfalfa, you know, orchard grass, whatever, whatever you're going to farm, what are your inputs? And you'll always have inputs. There's not any farm that has no inputs. So it might be time, it might be labor, it might be feed costs, it might be machinery costs, fuel costs, something. You're going to have inputs to it. The thing is to try and find ways to minimize your inputs and maximize your outputs. Give you an example. We never really wanted to raise pigs. We kind of fell into it. We were going to raise a pig for ourselves and sell one, which is what a lot of people do, but then they don't realize what it costs to feed the pigs, to house the pigs, and do all those kinds of things. And then you have to do the processing. So are you, as the, the farmer, paying for the processing? Is that the customer? Do they know what the costs are? What do you price your pig at? Is it per pound? Is it live weight? Is it hanging weight? Is it by the cut? I had one guy who I was consulting with, and you know his theory was he's going to get buy some land. He's got ten acres. He's going to put a fence around it, throw some cows out there, and he's going to go butcher them and get all the steaks, and then he's just going to sell the rest as ground beef. Well, I can tell you that's that's not the best market. Not a lot of people want ground beef or the offcuts. They want those steaks too. That's where your money is. Uh, Buddy Darby, I, I don't remember what his price is the last time I talked to him, but I want to say they were like $20 a pound, $14 to $20 a pound for some of his steaks. I mean, that's some serious price in there. And you can only get so many steaks out of a cow. What are you going to do with the rest? You know, is that what you get to eat? Is you get the, the leftover part and you sell the premium prime cuts to somebody and that's your profit? Um, you know, looking at the the butchering cost, you can't butcher yourself and sell cuts to people. That's you know against the FDA laws and, and all of this. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just telling you that's against the law. Um, we do a lot of things that may be sketchy on the law. Anyway, um, so with processing dates, currently it's a year out booking. We had to book sheep and. Uh, processing dates over a year in advance and then when the date came we weren't ready because they hadn't reached weight yet because we didn't even have the lambs or the pigs when we made these dates they weren't even born yet some of them weren't even conceived yet so because of COVID and everything it pushed everything back so far out on processing dates that you have a long wait so you know again consulting with people they're like well who do I use for a processor well do you 
have pigs? Oh yeah, they're ready like in the next month. Well, you ain't getting a processing date. Almost every reputable processor is booked out a year to two years in advance. And so, you know, that's something you also have to think about. We have one friend who won't listen to me, but, you know, he was proce- he was paying for the processing and raising the pig and then also delivering the pig to people, but he kept re- couldn't realize why he wasn't making money on this. I'm like, well, dude, you got to pay yourself something. You've got to charge for the pig. You've got inputs for the pig. You're paying the processing and the delivery. Are you recouping all that cost? Well... Kinda, I, th- I think so. It's like, have you put it into Excel? Do you know what your costs are? We're not really. And, you know, he wanted to sell um, goat brats. All right, cool. He's like, what do you think I should sell them for? I'm like, well, it's a, it's a novelty thing. You know, what does it cost you to raise the goat? And, and he's like, well, I sell them for $400 a head. Well, that's not what it costs you. That's what you're selling a live animal for. And those people are getting the entire animal, not just the brats. Well, if I take $400 divided by the weight, that's what I should charge. You're missing the point. You don't know what your input costs are. You don't know what the processing costs are. I'm selling for $15 a pack. Well, again, all well and good. You don't know what your costs are and who's going to buy a package of five goat brats for $15. You know, $15 to $17, I think he said. I mean, personally, I won't. Maybe some people will. I don't know. I wouldn't pay that much for a pack of brats. Especially when I have my own and they cost me, like, under a buck to produce. So, you know, there's some things that you have to get into. And it's the nitty-gritty and the dirty part. And people don't want to do the work. They just want to get a farm, put some animals on it, and you're going to make money. That's not it. you got a marketing. You've got medications that you may or may not have to use. You've got the health of the livestock, watering, feeding, who's maintaining them. That means no vacations if you have livestock. Or if you do, who's going to pay you? Paying somebody to come take care of them. Now, I'll get family to do it. Well, that's all well and good. Do they know your process? Do they know what you're doing? Are they wanting something in return? What happens if your animals die under their care? Do they let them out? Or they, you know, don't go chase them down when they get out because it's really not their concern. You know, all of these things have to be factored in when you're doing it. So, you know, just going out and saying you're going to make money as soon as you put animals on the ground or sell them, you got to know what your input cost is. And then you, you know, again, I'm going with Darby because he was a mentor of mine for two years. And I learned so much from him, not just of what to do, but what I personally didn't like that was going on that was in his operation, but he loved it because it was the way he ran things, but it wasn't ideally the way I wanted to run things. So, you know, I learned both the goods and bads and a lot of little things that you don't learn from other people or they don't teach you in necessarily in books or these um, homesteading conferences or anything like that. And I've taught at the conferences. Love the conference. Love to get a bunch of people and educate them. But a lot of them don't want to pay for the education. They don't feel it's worth it. And there's a lot of free education out there, but then you also get what you pay for. Hey, I'm putting out a podcast. You're getting a free education, so take it for what it's worth. Do your research. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to anybody. Do your own homework and do your own planning. And go in with the, I would like to do this, but I know that may not be realistic kind of attitude. 
And if it works, phenomenal. If it doesn't, you're not putting all your eggs in a basket and setting yourself up to fail. So, you know, that's one aspect of, of, of the, the part of it. Another one, and I'm guilty of this, like I said, we got into it and I thought we were going to raise goats and move them around and trailer them to clean property and then sell the goats for meat or milk them and this and that. Yeah, that never happened. You know why? Because goats don't stay in anywhere. I wasn't going to sit and tend the goats while they were there. I got other things to do. We didn't have a livestock guardian dog that would stay with them. You know, we didn't have clients lined up or really have ever set that system up. I just thought of that it was cool and I saw other people doing it and they look, made it look so easy. It's not that easy. Um, you know, some people do have it. They've worked out a system. They've worked it out so that it is easy, but that wasn't a first year kind of thing for them. They had to, to go through the ropes just like everybody else. Um, so there is a learning curve. So part two on this, or not part two, but I guess number two, is you need to watch your homestead for a year before you start doing anything. I mean, I am guilty again. As soon as we bought this property, I wanted to start changing things before we even signed the papers. I had so many ideas and pie in the sky. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. We're going to put this here and put that there. Almost everything that we wanted to do when we first bought the property has either changed, modified, or failed. Very few things has been 100% successful. And it was a learning curve. So some things did okay. Some things did better. Some things like failed miserably because I didn't have the experience under my belt. And there's no real way to gain experience. You can go work on other people's farms. You can go tour. You can watch videos. You can sit there and watch YouTube for years to figure out what everybody else is doing. But until you do it, there's a learning curve. You've got to learn by doing. So I'll give you some examples like we wanted to, you know, we were going to use barbed wire fence because that was what was on the property. Yep, didn't keep the goats in, didn't keep the sheep in. We made the mistake of, you know, thinking that the cheaper fencing and we needed a script because we were trying to cash flow everything on what gauge fencing, what size T-posts, how many T-posts. We're going to use electric because that's what Greg Judy does. All these things that we saw on all the other farmsteads and homesteads didn't work out because we didn't have the experience on our property and our land. Where we put gates in almost always was the wrong place because it was in a low point and become a soupy soppy mess and mud all the time. Nothing grows there. And when it gets wet like that at a gate or a, you know, a junction, it weakens the foundation of your uh, posts and things that are in the ground. And then they start falling over. And then you have re you know animals getting out. You have more issues. So you know that was something that we learned. Um, where the water flows on your property? Where are the you know the gully washers? Where does it collect? Now, we have lots of places where we have standing water, which we could have done something different of where the animal huts were that, you know, end up flooding because eventually they build wallows in it, you know, at least for the pigs, and then they become a soupy mess and we have to move them somewhere else. So, you know, all of these things. And I want to stress, like, most of our fencing and structures and things were made with pallets or teepos and they weren't permanent. You know, things like concrete and barns and 
uh, these other kinds of big structures, once you put them in, you can't get them out. So, you know, especially where your house is, is another one. Those are things that you can't modify once you put them in there without either a significant cost or, you know, a lot of pain to do it. So really sit and watch and think about these things at least a year. Where does your wind come from? You can look at weather maps and, you know, historical data, but that's kind of a general overall area for your location. It's not your farm. There may be trees that are a buffer and it directs the wind differently. There may be hills. There may be microclimates in different places. You won't know until you've been there. And, you know, we're guilty. Again, some of these things just, just were not meant to be where we put them. And we've had to adjust and learn and go along the way. Fencing is one thing that we still struggle with today. And this is seven years. You know, stretching fence, how high the fence, how far the T-posts, um, corner bracing. God, I couldn't stress corner bracing enough. And I thought, nah, we won't do that. That's not needed. Oh, God, it's very needed. As if there's a reason why these things are done. Now, you can always hire somebody to do fencing. But again, you're talking some serious money here. Um, a buddy of mine got a quote. I think it was to fence in like... 10 acres or something. It was just a perimeter fence. We wanted wooden posts, uh, woven wire with a top wire, uh, barbed wire. And like a couple of gates in different places. $10,000. And that was a cheap price. These guys can come in and do it in like a day or two, but you're talking some serious money. Um, you know, is that and it's not like you can finance that. They, they want their money before they start. They want half up front and half at the end. I mean, some of them are different, but for the most part, that's what you got to come up with. Um, you can put it on a card if they accept credit cards, but then you've got the debt of that plus the interest to pay it off. So, you know, observing the land, observing your surroundings, observing what's around you. What is your predator load? And that you won't learn until you start getting livestock, you know. Do you have raccoons? Do you have possums? Do you have, uh, you know, coyotes or other things? Um, hawks. It all depends on what you're raising, and once you bring livestock to the property, they'll start showing up. I mean, if there wasn't livestock already there, well, then you think, well, I'll just have a fence, and that keeps them out. Yeah, that doesn't keep them out. Uh, you know, foxes can go through woven wire. Raccoons climb. Possums climb. Hawks are overhead. Here's one that a lot of people don't think about. Um, blackface vultures. We have those here in Indiana, which they are a non-native species, but they are a prote federally protected bird because they're migratory. They come from Mexico. Now, red-faced turkey vultures are natural here. We like them. They take care of the dead. They clean off dead bodies. Without them, we'd have a lot more disease and stink and dead animals running around. Okay, dead animals don't run around, but you know what I mean. Dead animals all over the place. Blackface vultures will actually attack livestock. And you have the naturalists and, and whatnot saying, no, they won't. I can guarantee you they do. I've seen it personally. Um, we know farmers who have calves that have been killed by the blackface vulture. Um, we've had lambs taken. For the first couple of years, we were having lambs, and we didn't know what predator we had. We'd see a leg, a head, pieces of body parts, but we would never see what it was. You know, 
a fox or a coyote would take the whole lamb. Uh, a hawk would probably take it out or would leave certain parts. Oh no, we didn't know what it was because we didn't see any tracks. We couldn't tell. Till one day I saw it happening. You had given birth to twins. She was actively trying to protect one baby and there were 30, 40 black-faced vultures going after the other baby and it picked it apart in a minute. Live, screaming, by the time I got to it, it was gone. The other baby we managed to save, it was missing an ear, a tail, um, had some pecking around different parts of the body, and mom had taken some beating as well. And I was dumbfounded by this. And you can't kill these birds. Well, legally can't kill these birds. We're lucky, at least in far in Indiana, Farm Bureau um, Insurance Company has a blanket permit they just hand out to farmers to protect their livestock because it is ridiculous the amount of hoops and hurdles you have to go through to get a DNR permit to kill these birds that are predatory. Um, you know, they I, I actually consulted with them and they told me that I had to have all of our lambs birthed in the barn. I had to do all these techniques to discourage the vultures from coming. I couldn't kill them. I couldn't poison them. And I'm like, you know, I can't do that. We have more sheep than will fit in the barn. Well, you can't do this. You have to show that they are attacking your livestock. I'm like, I saw it. He goes, that's not good enough. We have to have proof. So you have to be out there with a video camera to show that these are in order to get a permit to protect your livestock? So anyway, know your, your surroundings, what's around you. Know your ordinances and your zoning. So we, I consulted with a, a friend of ours or client. I don't know. I have lots of friends who are also clients, and clients become friends. So she was looking at buying a property two doors down from us. So technically, it's in the country. It's outside city limits. We have livestock. But... In our county, there is a two-mile buffer zone around the city that the city dictates what can go on in conjunction with the county, and you're not allowed to have livestock, or you have to get zoning permits to do it. And since this property never had livestock on it, they had never gotten permits, and when she was looking at buying this property to put livestock on, they told her, no, we're not going to issue any permits because it's too close to town and we don't want livestock that close to town. So get this. The city can dictate how the county runs with this two-mile buffer zone. The county doesn't pay... The people who live in the county don't pay taxes to the city. We don't get to vote who's on the city council. We don't get to vote for the mayor. But yet, they're going to dictate what happens to us. Let's just say our farm doesn't follow that two-mile radius and we do what we want. And to date, seven years, nobody said anything to us. We were also told that we were grandfathered from the prior uh, property owners that since we had always had livestock, we didn't have to apply for a new permit. We were grandfathered in. I was at a city council meeting, no, a county council meeting, and there was an issue with a friend of ours, William Morrison. He's, you know, the county's trying to take his property for a long thing, so whole podcast just on that sometime um and we were i was talking with some people who were there and about possibly putting in a horse barn and putting solar panels well 
the county building inspector, or it may have been the health inspector, I don't remember, said, you need to have permits for that. I'm like, it's an outbuilding for a horse. Yeah, you need to get permits from the city and the county for that. Like, I don't live in the city limits. She goes, but you're in the two-mile zone. You have to get permits. And I was like, okay, well, then I'll put solar panels on a stand. Well, you need permits for that, too. So I need to put permits for a solar panel on my property. Yes, we need to make sure that it's installed properly and it's electrical. I was like, that's not your job. That's the electrical company. That's who I pay my... If I'm connecting it to the grid, that's their job. That's not your job. We need to still have permits so that it doesn't blow away and it's not a safety hazard. So that's what my insurance is for. Well, we still need a permit. And every permit they want is a cost. You have to pay for them to come out and do these permits. So not only are you paying taxes to the people, you have to pay for permits. So know your ordinance and zoning before you get set on a property. So many people have moved into different areas. We're one of them when we bought our tiny house. Um, that the ordinances for the town can be changed while you're already there and they won't grandfather you and you have no recourse. When we bought our tiny house at Wingate, we brought our chickens and ducks and rabbits with us and it was a two-year battle with them over ducks and chickens and I ended up costing the little podunk city of Wingate, Indiana more money in legal fees in the one and a half year I was battling them and it was just me. I didn't hire an attorney. It wasn't anything like that. But more in legal fees over me having six chickens than they had spent in the prior ten years in legal fees. So I wasn't going down without a fight. Then we got the, the, the 32 acres in Greencastle. And I still wanted to fight. Brandy says, my wife says, just let it go. We're not there anymore. Let it go. I was like, but it's the principle. If they're going to be allowed to dictate these things and, you know, be these little overlord rulers that they really have no justification for, it's the principle of it. And I wouldn't let it go. And so, again, it was a two-year battle with them. They finally changed the rule, changed the ordinances, and outlawed all of these things. And then basically said, you can't do anything about it which I filed, you know, with the Attorney General and all these other things, and basically they are can do whatever they want because they're elected officials, and if they wanted to put this into place, then that's what they can do. So, you know, personal experience here of dealing with ordinances and laws and zoning for your area, you need to make sure whatever you have in your plan or your wheelhouse either can fit into it or you can find a way around it so you know those are some things to consider and you know it would completely suck if you were found a property you loved and everything that you wanted you move in you you start laying down livestock getting attached to them and then a year later somebody from the county or city or whatever says um you have 30 days to get rid of your livestock or we're going to take them, kill them, or start fining you like $10,000 a day. And this is what happened to uh, Mark Baker of Baker's Green Acres in Michigan. And they didn't like the type of pig he was raising. It wasn't anything about the ordinance of the laws. They said it was a Michigan too. It was the entire state wasn't just a little city or a town, it was the state against him. 
and he didn't take it. He battled them, I want to say like it was like 10 or 12 years, and they had armed law enforcement there, confiscating animals, taking animals, and literally taking them and killing them. Weren't taking them for processing. He was not allowed to take them for processing to at least recoup some of it. Wasn't allowed to sell them to get them. They took them and killed them. So he was out all of that money. He then was in legal battles and for many years. And I want to say it's been like millions of dollars fighting them. There were GoFundMes. There were donations. There was all kinds of things to help him fight against this overreach of the government. And to this day, I don't think it's been settled because they finally dropped the case against him. And now I want to say he's suing them. I don't know the details. I haven't followed up in it in a while. But, you know, you've got to think that this could be any time. Now, there is something that's called Farm to Consumer Legal Defense. And it's a membership. And it's a broad membership across the country. And the problem being is you have to be a member. And it's like uh, monthly fees or annual fees to be a part of this. And they will represent you in most cases. um, I don't want to say most cases. In a lot of cases. um, Against government overreach and things like that. Um, They will not represents you once legal action has already started. So if you've already gotten a letter or a cease and desist or something like that from a government agency, they will not intervene because that's already started. They need to be there before all of this starts. Um, So you have to do this prior to it. Are we members? No. Have we looked into it? Yes. Um, We have the viewpoint of we're going to skirt or find creative ways around the regulations and laws. And to date, we haven't had any issues. Um, You know, that's that's that fine edge. Where are you going to draw the line and how much risk are you willing to take? For us, it was if we needed to, we could do something different. We could... uh, sell the live, you know, some of the livestock. It would just be whatever the certain case may be, but we've done enough research about the laws and what we do and how we do it to feel more comfortable in our practices. Being new and just starting out, that's something you got to look into. And, you know, it sucks to be, you know, you, you have so many hats as a farmer and homesteader. And when I say hats, I mean like not cowboy hat, sun hat, you know, baseball cap. What I'm talking about is what you have to do and knowledge you have to have. So you have to be a vet. You have to be able to diagnose and pre-treat a lot of animals. Otherwise, your vet bill is going to get out of hand. If you call the vet for every sniffle, sneeze, you know, diarrhea, questionable blemish, questionable burp, then you're going to run into some serious costs. So you have to be able to evaluate and diagnose these things. You have to be a nutritionist to know what kind of feed and uh, what, sorry, I was 
kind of a feat, you know. I made the mistake of not knowing about acidosis with livestock. Uh, and acidosis is when a ruminant's getting something that they're not normally used to, builds up gases and digestive juices that they cannot process, and basically they die. And it's a slow, ugly death. So, uh, you got to know the ins and outs about your breed. I see so many people getting goats, getting sheep because they're cute as babies or whatever, and then have not the clue on how to manage them, what their nutritional needs, what are their mineral needs, what kind of vaccinations or shots they need, what kind of parasites do they have. All of these things are need to know. And sometimes you have to learn along the way, and sometimes you learn lessons the hard way like we did. I ended up killing like 12 of our sheep, and these were friendly sheep that had names that were pets that were supposed to be lifelong members of our farm, and I was the blame for that. And it was all in good intention that, you know, we got... 5,000 pounds of grits, and grits is just corn, and animals can eat corn. Well, I gave them a little bit, because I knew about bloat, and watch for bloat, nobody got bloat, so I gave them a little bit more, and a little bit more. The problem is, they weren't used to eating corn. We weren't grain feeding them at that time. So yeah, it was like eating candy, so I gave them just candy after candy after candy, and was looking for acute symptoms, and not looking for long-term symptoms. So, I think we saved a couple, and some of them were a week plus long, slowly, and we did everything we could, and by that time, it's in their system. We couldn't we couldn't turn them around. I couldn't save them. So, it was a lesson we learned a real hard way, and I hope nobody else has to learn those lessons, but know your livestock. Know your, your ins and outs. Um, you know, the ordinances and the laws, you know, that was one piece. You know, learning about what diseases and parasites, what's the life cycle, how long will your animals live, at what point is it more humane to put the animal down than it is to keep prolonging their life or suffering. Um, you know, as kind of morbid as it is, what do you do when an animal dies? You know, do you, is it a compost? Is it a burying them? You know, a cow is a big animal to bury. How are you going to move that cow? Do you have the equipment to move that cow? Can you process that cow if it dies? Would you process that cow if it dies and you don't know the reason? If you pump this animal full of antibiotics trying to save its life and then it dies, you're not going to be able to eat it because a lot of these medications and drugs have withdrawal times that it's not safe for human consumption. So... All of those things are things that you need to think about before going into it. Um, you know, oh, I'll, you know, another one is, oh, I'll get a, a, a milking cow and I'll milk her and sell the raw milk. Well, again, law says that's illegal. Um, some cows don't do milking. Sometimes they don't like the person that's milking them. Sometimes you have to buy a milking machine. You know, milking machines are expensive. You have cleanliness. Where are you going to milk this cow? Um, you know, do you know what a cow and milk costs? Uh, you know, all these kinds of things. Do you know what to do for mastitis, which is when they get an infection in the udder? You know, all of these things. You know, you've got to think about those things going into it. And it's not one of those, I'll learn it along the way. Yeah, you might learn some things, but some things you might learn too late. You know, sometimes it's a, 
you've got to treat something right now. There's not time to wait 24 hours for a vet. There's, you know, if a vet's not there at night, what are you going to do? Emergency call? Those get expensive real fast. So you've got to know and educate yourself. So if you're to the point of, I want to get a homestead and I want to, to farm, start educating. Start educating before you even buy a property or start looking for properties. Um, you know, where do you want to be? How far do you want to be? How far of a drive? What's the community like? What resources do you have? Is there a vet close to you? Do the vets in your area see the kind of animals or things that you want to do? We're lucky enough that we have a vet network. So it's not just one vet. It's multiple offices within a mile and a half of our farm. They treat all manner of livestock. I don't think they do like steaks and you know some of the exotics. They may. I don't know. We haven't ever approached that because we don't have those things. But, you know, they'll see cows. They have head shoots and gates that they can bring out to farms. They'll do vet uh, coming on site if you need them to. It's expensive. Um, so for the most part, we've done a lot of things ourselves. And, you know, our dogs and, and cats go to them for being fixed and whatnot or some of their vaccinations. We do some of the vaccinations ourselves. The one thing we can't do is rabies. Uh, farm cannot buy their own rabies vaccination. Oh, speaking of shots and doing it yourself, new laws coming out in 2023, sometime June, I've heard, because they keep pushing the date back. It was supposed to be 2021, then it was 2022, then it was before 2023, now it's mid-2023. The FDA is banning all sales of over-the-counter antibiotics to uh, farms. You have to have a prescription from now on, which means you have to get an established relationship with the vet. The vet, once you have that relationship, either A, they'll want to come out and dose it so that they can get their costs, or B, you have a relationship with them and they know that you will be using it only as directed and they have confidence in your abilities, and they will write the prescription so that you can get it. So it's kind of like the whole going to the doctors to get your medications. They always want you to come in for a refill so that they can get their extra money from insurance for seeing you and treating you. Even though you may have been on this medication for 20 years, it's a maintenance medication, they still want you to come in so they can get their extra money. It's, it's just a big racket and a market, and it sucks, and I don't know what you're going to do to get around it. So, if that's what you, if you plan on being your own vet and treating a lot of things yourself like we are, time's running out. You may not be able to do that in the future. Um, so, as I'm talking and I'm driving it with the livestock trailer in tow, how are you going to move animals? Have you thought about that? You know, I get, I see people who will get little feeder pigs who are, you know, 50 pounds or less, transport them in their vehicle in a dog crate or whatever. Well, when those pigs are 280 pounds or bigger, how are you going to move them? You're not getting them in the family minivan. Um, pigs don't like to get loaded very easy unless you train them for that. So do you have a means to haul them? Is that a livestock trailer? Is that... Um, trying to find somebody who will haul your animals. And those are few and far between. So, um, you know, you got to think about that aspect. So, we have a livestock trailer, and we got it, you know, 
kind of sweet deal because we were watching the used marketplace and somebody happened to have one. It was right in our price range. Oh, it's beat up. It's ugly. It has holes. It has rust. Um, you know, we've had to do some modifications to it, but it works. It hauls, pulls straight, and we use it. We use it more than a lot of other people use. If we were just using it to haul livestock, we would use it one, maybe two times a year. That's it. The rest of the time it's sitting. So, you know, that's an expense that sits around that doesn't get used. It doesn't have to be the case. I'll talk to some other points of being more self-sufficient things. This is going to be a long podcast because i got lots of things still going and I'm almost to where I need to be and then I'll talk on the way home. So, you know, that's pieces of equipment that just sit around. Um, we have a friend, another friend, who, I don't know how many acres they have. Uh, let's just say they have 30 acres. They were using maybe 10 to actually farm on and they were renting out the other property, the part of the property for her soybean, you know, row crop kind of stuff. And they were getting, uh, I think it was like two grand a year off of this. Well, they decided, you know, after talking with them, it was like, hey, why don't you, you know, fence that in and run your livestock there? That That's prime area for for fields, for, for grazing and things. So after like a year or two of talking with them about it, they finally decided to do this. But they didn't listen to me. They listened to somebody else. And instead of fencing it in, because that was a, too much of an expense and work to fence it in, and they didn't want to pay somebody to do it, and they didn't have the time to fence it, so they canceled the row crop and then wanted to do put it in as a hay field so they wouldn't have to go buy hay anymore. <laughs> I laughed when I heard them doing this. Not to their face, of course, but I, we did hay as well in the same premise. So they don't have a tractor, so that was an issue. So they had to borrow or rent a tractor from someone who they went and tilled the fields up, and then they had to get a seeder, and they seeded it. Well, this field is filled with rocks, and, you know, it's been abused. It's been in row crop for a long time. So the soil's been pretty much depleted. They had the previous row crop tenants had sprayed it and, you know, really hurt the soil so you know without having a tractor this was all dependent on somebody else and somebody else's uh, equipment and you know they ended up having to use these people equipment and they weren't always available uh, they had problems with the equipment and then so he decided he's going to buy um, a baler and a cutter for this and then a rake so you're, we're talking some serious money. So he didn't want to buy used, but I suggested he wanted to buy new. So that's you know ten thousand dollars for a cutter. And then you have the hay. Well, we'll just sell the extra hay that we have. Well, he had never grown hay in this field before. Didn't know what kind of the quality was. Didn't come up the way he wanted. And the hay wasn't optimal, and he barely had enough for himself, let alone to sell. Now he's got all this money invested into hay equipment. Still no tractor. And I want to say that hey, the property is like 10 acres worth of uh, pasture now. And they got maybe 150 square bales out of this. So we told him we would buy some hay. And we'd come pick it out in the field. Well, he was thinking he was going to get 
500 plus bales because that's what some old timer said he would get on that size land. They'd never grown hay there, had no idea what the soil quality was, but somebody told him they were going to get 500 bales and all he saw was money sign and it didn't end up being that way. The 25 bales I think we got from him ended up molding, so half of it was junk because he never done hay, baled it, put it up, you know, before it was completely dry, so now, then he wanted to get a 90 horsepower tractor so that he could go even faster and bale it and rake it and cut it because he had so many other things to do. Well, a 90 horsepower tractor is big money. So he's sank all this money into 10 acres worth of hay. My advice was, anything under 20 acres, don't bother doing hay yourself. And that wasn't my advice. That was from an NRCS uh, grazing specialist who told me that. And that was being on our used, beat-up equipment, not new stuff. So, you know, spending tens of thousands or even up to $100,000 on hay equipment for 10 acres just doesn't make financial sense. That's, you know, you got to think, doing the whole Excel numbers, Excel doesn't lie. So how many bales of hay do you have to sell to to do those kinds of things. So, you know, you need to learn some of these things. If you're buying property that had row crops, what was on it? Um, how long was it on it? Did they spray? What did they spray? You know, what is the soil like? You know, those are all things that you need to consider. Um, and, and don't be investing. So, so, going back to the hay piece, we had 30 acres that we had. It's not the best property for doing hay. There's lots of hills. There's lots of trees. We didn't have a lot of continuous, easy-to-access areas for hay. However, the property next door to us that we had, a, you know, the prior property owners had a relationship with, they got to hay it over there. So, you know, we... Are you kidding me? Moron. Sorry. People in Indy cannot drive for shit. So we ended up looking for somebody to go hay this property for us since we didn't have a tractor or the hay equipment or know nothing about hay. Um, and through the Knowledge Hut, which was our local feed store, it's where all the farmers go and you get information on who's doing what and who can help with this and that, found somebody. He wasn't, he wasn't close. But he agreed to do half the hay for us, and he gets to keep half the hay. Cool. Cost us nothing. First year was great. Uh, you know, we had lots of hay bales, and we ended up having to buy a hay elevator to put it in the top of the barn. Worked well. Second year, we had realized that we needed more hay. So he's like, hey, we'll buy the hay if you'll come do it. Okay. Well, you know, there's always rain and this and that, so your the hay schedule was very chaotic. The problem also is we didn't have means to load and transport the hay, and being both my wife and I, well, Brandy was working, I wasn't, I was still on the farm. You know, you can only load so many hay bales a day, and sometimes it's a two-person job. We couldn't drive, we wild women couldn't drive back then. Um... So it's me driving with a little bitty trailer, stacking 30 bales at a time, 
on weekends or, you know, in the evening after Brandy got off of work. And we could only do so many hay bales a day. From light to just physical ability. So he would only be able to bale so many at a time. Otherwise, they stayed out there and ended up getting rained on. So it, it was just, it, it kind of sucked. But we managed through it. Well, the third year, you know, it was getting kind of later in the year. Like, hey, we made some improvements. We've changed gates. We've moved animals. Let us know what your schedule's going to be. I think this was in March or April. You know, when you want to try it, we're, we're working on improving so that we can get, she's going to take time off so we can get all the hay at once. Um, you know, what are your, are your prices going to be the same and this and that. And he says, I'm not doing hay this year. Oh, okay. Well, we were dependent on that hay. We didn't have another source of hay. We couldn't transport it, and these fields were going to keep, you know, growing. So for the next, that year, we're like, well, crap. What are we going to do? And it happened to be that a friend was selling a tractor. He wanted to get out of it. It's, it's been a decent tractor. It wasn't the best tractor. And then another friend was selling a cutter and a rake, which both were older than my wife and I combined. So not the newest equipment, but the price was fairly decent. We ended up finding a square baler, again, old piece of equipment, older than each of us, not combined. Um, it needed a little work. First time we used it, it broke. And we didn't know what to look for in equipment. What's good equipment, what's bad equipment, what what are the pitfalls. So we managed to limp through that first year cutting hay, raking it and everything. And it sucked because every time we would cut hay, even if it was a great forecast, it, it would rain. Then you have to wait again and dry it. And if the hay gets rained on, it's pretty much ruined. You may get a an opportunity to fluff it if you haven't bailed it yet or whatnot. Um, but if it's in windrows and it rains, you got a 50-50 chance of that hay is ruined. And if it's in bales and it gets rained on, more than likely it's ruined as well. You can't feed moldy hay to animals. So for the next two years, we fought with hay. And I can tell you, I absolutely hate doing hay. Um, the itchiness, the heat, the weather, the constant mechanical issues with tractors and equipment because we had to buy used and older equipment. I mean, it was always something going on. So, you know, that's something you need to think about of what are you going to feed your animals? Do you have things lined up? Do you have a feed store? Do you have a feed mill? Do you have hay lined up? Do you have uh, all those kinds of things available? All right. I'm going to have to take a break. I'm somewhere and I'm backing up and I'm having to use all of my senses. I'll be back in a minute. All right. I am back after loading up the truck. We just picked up six pallets. And that is all I could hold of food that was destined for the landfill that now will be getting a home for the pigs. Damn it, I have to stop because they've adjusted my mirror while I was parked and I can't see. Be right back.
and I am back. So we picked up six skids. Flour, sugar, an entire skid of pasta, and four skids of potatoes. That's a lot. I don't know how much the weight is, but we're talking four foot high skids of potatoes, a four foot high full tote of loose pasta, and another skid of various flour. So whole wheat, I saw um, cornmeal, I saw some sugar, and all of this was going to the landfill before you know, I made the connection with the food bank. So this helps you, us offset our feed bills so that we're not having to feed, you know, buy feed for all the animals. So that's one way that you can offset some of those costs of owning the livestock on your homestead. Um, so I was talking about hay and all of my issues with hay. I absolutely hate hay. I think I had another conversation on another podcast about hay. So, you know, for what it's worth. When you're learning about your animals, learn how much they eat each day. You know, how much is a cow going to eat? How much is a horse going to eat? How much is sheep going to eat? What size sheep? Um, so you can start basing some of your numbers to be profitable on it and not get a whole herd of, of sheep and then realize this is way too expensive to feed them. And, you know, you either have to liquidate them or the sheep's, the animal's health starts to suffer. Anyway. So financial reasons of why things fail is you just don't do the numbers or you have inflated numbers. So because Joel Salatin can get uh, you know $35 or $40 for one of his pasture raised chickens are you going to be able to get that much? You know if you know Darby's selling fillets for $27 a pound are you going to be able to don't think just because somebody else is, you're going to, too. They've established markets, relationships, and there's a reason they get that price. You may or may not. I've met too many people who said their price is too high and are unknowns and haven't done the, the legwork to get to those prices, and you know then they can never sell them. Or they base all of their operations off of selling at those prices, but then never can get it, so they end up losing money on it get frustrated and then quit. Another point of failure is being on the same page with your partner. You know, you may be doing this solo. You may have a partner. Um, maybe it's a business partner. Maybe it's a family member partner as a spouse or a significant other, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. So make sure they're on board so that it's not just a one-sided uh, situation. Uh, one of my clients she was all into homesteading and being self-sufficient and making manuals and planting the food and doing the garden and taking care of the livestock and would get absolutely no help from her husband. He didn't want to do it, didn't want to weed, didn't want to take care of animals. It was not his thing. He was not interested. He was more interested in sitting on the couch and watching his sports team on the weekends or playing video games. You know? He worked all week, and that's what he wanted to do with his off time. He didn't want to work a second job on top of it. You know, not going to fault him. That's that's his, his deal. But they weren't on the same page. She expected him to help, and when he wouldn't help, would get frustrated. 
He was frustrated that money kept going out, but they were not seeing any financial benefits. The food bills weren't going down. It may have been going down for the family to eat, but the food bills for the animals was going up and replaced that. So he was seeing all of his money go out with no real gain. She was always busy tending to the garden, tending to the livestock or whatever. And, you know, it was a point of contention between the two of them. So she ended up basically giving up. It caused problems in their marriage. They may or may not still be together. Don't know. Didn't follow up with some of that. Um, that wasn't what I was there for, though. I was there for to try and help her streamline and become more efficient in what she's doing. And, you know, one of the things she did was she had a lot of pets and not a lot of livestock. So, you know, the pigs that she brought in were too cute to take to butcher, so she just kept feeding them out. They weren't ever going anywhere to be bacon or ham. To be fair, we have a lot of those as well. We have a lot of those animals who we've grown attached to for one reason or another and are not going anywhere. So, you know, we failed in one aspect, but we gained some more as those may be breeding stock or, you know, those are part of the teaching aspect of the farm. When people come for tours and whatnot, they can pet a pig and she'll roll over and let her belly get rubbed. Or, you know, the sheep will come and eat out of your hand because they're friendly, but they're weathers, so they'll never produce another offspring. Um, they do have decent fiber, so at least we can get that off of them. Um, so, you know, we're failing at that as well. But, you know, that was her, her aspect that her partner was not on ball. With my wife, current wife, because otherwise we're not on that same page, um... We were on this page from the get-go. We were friends at first, and we came together and talked about stuff at work and talked about, you know, homesteading and canning and doing all these kinds of things. We had a lot of common, similar interests. And so when it came down to the farm and livestock and operations, there wasn't this we were on two different pages. Now, in some cases, we are on different pages as far as what priorities and projects need to be done. Um... Her view of a horse barn and horse arena is somewhat of an important piece to her, but not necessarily to me because I don't ride horses. I like the horses. I wouldn't mind having a big draft horse, but that would be another pet. Um, but for me, having more things that are fixing the fencing, getting the gardens in, things that are producing versus just consuming um, is more my priority. So... Do we argue about it? Not really. It's just, well, that has to get on the back burner. Well, you said it was going to get this year. Yeah, we also didn't anticipate having this, this, and this happen. So, you know, does she get frustrated sometimes? Yeah. Do we get frustrated with each other on projects? Oh, yeah. We hate doing projects together. We, we have to. We work well sometimes, but other times there's lots of foul language and throwing of tools and, you know, stomping off because you're pissed off or frustrated about this or that. I have certain ways I want to do things. She has certain ways she wants to do things. For instance, I like my tools where I put them, in the in the proper places. So the post hole pattern goes in the right spot. That's where it belongs. That's its home. So when you're done using it, you put it back in its home. Tools don't get left out in the rain because they will rust and they will, you know, are useless. 
We spent a lot of money on some of these tools to be able to leave them out in the rain because you forgot where you put them or that's the last place you use them. So we disagree on some of those things of, or not on the same page of, you know, I go to look for a certain tool. It's not where I left it. It's not where it's supposed to be. So I spend an hour to two hours looking for this damn tool and, you know, ask her and she can't remember where she left it because you have to go back. Where did you use it last time? I wasn't the last one to use it. Well, let's see, I didn't fix fencing. You fixed fencing, so where's the post hole pounder? Where did you fix the fencing last? And that's usually where it's at. So, you know, some of those kinds of things or, um, you know, what things we need to buy for the farm. You know, we have, I don't know, a dozen solar powered different light sources because they were going to put she was going to put them in the horse trailer and put them in the barn and put them in the goat shed and this and that we keep buying them and there's boxes of shit everywhere but we haven't used them why because it hasn't been a priority it was a deal and she thought and saw it and we needed this and we're going to use this to go forward well it doesn't happen that way not putting all the blame on here i'm just as bad i like things done in a certain way and if they're not done my way it pisses me off so, you know, um, for instance, why didn't, you know, why didn't you do this? Well, I was busy doing something else. Well, that's not the right way to do it. Well, I was busy doing something else. I got a temporary fix. So a lot of those things, or I forgot to close the gate. Yeah, you forgot to close the gate. Now I'm chasing, you know, 200 sheep down the road because you forgot to close the gate because it's not something you do every day. That's something else that, you know, for we wild woman and I, we're on the same page. We know who does what chores when. We, you know, do our respective things that we know we're responsible for in the morning, and we divvy them up by who likes to do certain things, who enjoys certain aspects of it. And when we go out for chores, we split. And if something comes up in between while we're off doing our separate chores, we'll text or call and figure out what, you know, how we're going to come back together on it. Or, after all the chores are done, we meet back up before going inside, and we kind of go over what all happened, what was done, is anything left, what are the next steps. And that's not the same way when, when senior farm boss is there. If she goes off and does her own things, which is may or may not be on our project list or what we need to get done. You know, she has her own set of what she thinks needs to get done. When we, Wild Woman and I, go out, if there's something that needs to go to the barn, it's sitting by the back door, you pick it up and you take it with you. It's not the case with the other one, because she's focused on what's going to be done outside as opposed to what needs to be done along the way. So, you know, be on the same page for different, you know, for the different aspects. And, you know, communication. We, we sometimes can communicate, and we sometimes can't. Um... But if you are and your partner are not even on the same page about different things, you know, one wants to homestead, one doesn't, that, that's an issue. Or maybe it's one wants to do canning and start canning some of your, your harvest and your bounty, but the other one doesn't like canned food or doesn't like the process or won't eat it. You know, we have, have one uh, friend whose husband will only eat Hunt's tomato ketchup in a certain size bottle. He will not eat anything else, even if it's a cost issue, and goes through ketchup regularly. So I told her, I was like, you know, hey, you could buy a number 10 can and refill those containers. Husband refuses to eat it if she has repackaged the ketchup. 
even if it's the same ketchup, he won't eat it. So, you know, some of those kinds of things, you, you, you can try, but is it a battle that you really want to fight? You know, is it worth fighting? I had an ex-wife who uh, insisted on putting her shoes on the kitchen counter and on the stove, or in the damn stove, whenever she got home from work. Now, that's where you eat. You're putting your dirty, nasty shoes on the countertops. Why? You know, after several arguments, it was told, it's my house, if you don't like it, get out. Over shoes on the counter. Really? That, that's, that's okay. Um, so we're talking about why homesteading and farming doesn't necessarily work out and people get disillusioned. So a lot of times I see or talk to clients who see all of these YouTubers and you know, Instagram or whatever, or even if it's different conferences and things, see these farms and how they look and everything's magical and everything's done this, but you, you may not see all of the, the bad side. So they're only showing you the good side. Now there are a few who show the loss and this and that. And there is one guy, I won't say his name because I don't want to give him any more credit or fans because I despise him and his show and for a lot of reasons but you know he wanted to do this all natural no um, synthetic you know, antibiotics or worming he's going to use apple cider vinegar and diatomaceous earth to worm his sheep and over the series of a few weeks, he just could not figure out why his sheep's health were not improving. He's using apple cider vinegar and DE as a, a parasite removal. Well, neither one of those are going to remove parasites. So these sheep slowly died. They wasted away to nothing because the parasites were taking all the nutrients. Because he refused to use a, literally, a, a, like a two dollar amount of warmer on these sheep so he had principles over practicality and that drove me crazy he does this time and time again where he just refuses to do certain benefits for his farm or his animals because he has these principles he wants to do and doesn't want to face the fact that there are reasons why we have warmers. There are reasons why you do some of these things. And he just wouldn't do it. So, now he did show the death of this and the animals and whatnot. And kudos to that, I guess, that that's real farming. But, you know, a lot of the other ones just show all the great things that are and all the progress and not all of the failures and there's a lot of failures and they edit it so that it looks all good because nobody wants to see your failures nobody wants to you just want to be this this pristine farm and everything works well and you're the greatest but that's not real life everybody every farm has failures has setbacks has lessons they learn the hard way and it is not going to be a pie in the sky dream situation it may be i may be wrong but nobody I have ever met or come across or talked to in my 15 years doing this, probably more than that, that have had 
everything go exactly the way they wanted in the right plan in the right place. Weather, you know, there's so many things that are unpredictable. Government laws that change, you know, droughts, floods, um, you know, neighbors, all kinds of things. You have all kinds of things that can impact your operation as a farm, and it's just never going to work out perfect. So you have to learn that there are going to be setbacks. There are going to be failures. You take that lesson and you learn from it and you make it better. You know, I lost a bunch of the pet sheep from my own ignorance because I didn't know any better. I'm not going to say stupidity. I wasn't being malice. I wasn't mistreating. I was trying to do something good, but I just was ignorant on the fact that they could get acidosis. And now I know. And I know that inside and out about acidosis. I know how to look for it how to feed them. I know how to prevent it. And we have never had a sheep or any other animal go down because of acidosis after that. So I took that as a building block of learning on my failures. And you should do the same too. You should never feel that a failure is something that's going to, you know, completely devastate you. You should learn from those mistakes. You should learn from other people's mistakes. And, and not in a ha-ha, look what you did kind of way, but a, oh shit, that can actually happen. I, I need to pay attention because that may happen here sometime, and I need to learn from it. So, to go along with that, I wanted to, I guess, give a shout-out to, there's a, a YouTuber who does show the positives, the negatives, talks about the failures, talks about the mental health of raising livestock and farming. And that's uh, Sandy Brock. She runs Sheepishly Me. She's on Instagram and YouTube. We've learned, like, so much about sheep and different issues about sheep. And not just sheep, but a lot of different farming things. And she shows the good and the bad. And she'll break down on camera when she's tried and tried and tried to save uh, a ewe or a weather or something. And it just doesn't work out. And, you know, that's real. That's what real farming is. Or, you know, she had her barn. She raises, um, she's technically a CAFO, but she's one of the best CAFOs I've ever seen. She's like the model for how CAFOs should run, which the CAFO is a confined animal feed operation. Her sheep have, you know, because of where they're at, they may have some issues, but she does everything she possibly can make those sheep have the best possible lives and she you're right there with her she takes time to show the losses the heartache to talk about the mental loss the the defeats that you feel sometimes and to to get up and plug through it so if you're interested in sheep you know she has i think we've been watching her for four or five years now and I don't want to say we stopped watching her, she just we've learned so much and you know some of it's just the same old stuff and we're very envious of some of the the things that she has you know we love her sheep uh, management system and animal tagging and and all of this but it's several thousand dollars it's a great investment just out of our price range to be able to do something like that know her and her husband farm up in Canada, and it, it, it's different up there from where we're at. Um, you know, different temperatures, different climate, different legal aspects, 
and she sells a lot of her lambs at market. We don't go to market and sell them. Um, we've never taken any of our animals to market, and I can't really say why. Uh, we prefer to sell them to individuals who are, you know, starting their own flock, or we'll butcher our own. Not us personally, but we take them in for butchering. Or people who want to butcher their own, you know, we'll, we'll sell them that way. We've sold pets, we've sold wool. Um, it's not that I have anything against selling at the auction, it just, I've never done it, and it's kind of unpredictable. And we may do it this year because we've got to downsize so many sheep. Will we get a, mark, a fair market price? I don't know. I've looked at what the prices are. Um, and from what we sell them, it, it, it can be, uh, we can either make money from what we normally sell them for, or we can lose money. It's kind of a 50-50 a shop. We also don't raise our um, sheep. We do all grass-fed for the most part for sheep. I mean, they get treats here and there, and, you know, pregnant ewes or nursing moms will get some extra, like maybe some grains or some extra nutrition because that's that's hard on their body is taking a lot out of them. But uh, for the most part, they're grass-fed, grass-raised, and hay, and they're just slower to grow. So a lot of these other commercial operations breed earlier, have earlier lambs, like we're talking January, December, January time frame, and their um, lambs grow much faster because they're on sheep feed to grow. It's a certain breed that is meant to grow um, fast, put on weight fast, and uh, high feed to uh, basically feed to weight conversion, um, and that's just not who what we raise. We raise more heritage breeds and wool breeds, but they can get lambs up to size for market in Easter for the Easter lamb market, or we have other you know other people raise them for the more uh, ethnic groups that like uh, sheep and lambs for religious holidays. Um, you know, we don't have that kind of a market where we live. And we're not in the, the Indianapolis or some of the bigger city areas where that kind of ethnic diversity resides. And a lot of them will go buy from some of the ethnic markets, which we're not, you know, selling to those kinds of areas. So, you know, that's something to think about, too. I'm all over the place today, aren't I? I should, you know, kind of going down that path of the mental health. You know, when you when you work a, a Monday through Friday job, you get your weekends that you can kind of decompress and relax. Or even when you go home, you get to decompress and relax because work's not there for the most part. At least it shouldn't be. When you run a farm and you're operating a farm, you're on call 24-7. You don't get that mental relax period or days off when you don't have to do anything. You have to get up every single day and take care of the livestock. You have to get up every single day. Um, you know, if something's going on in the middle of the night, you're up in the middle of the night to go do it. Now, we have two bottle lambs in the house right now. And luckily, after the second night, they both slept through the night, so that's a good thing, but you got to feed bottle babies all the time. You can't go and leave for a full day and, you know, go to the zoo, go do this, go do that, because those babies need to be fed. Very proud of Wee Wild Woman. She took on those two sheep, and they live in her room right now. Um, 
they go sleep in a dog crate at night and they sleep through the night she gets up either she gets up first or they may get her up anywhere from six to eight and she'll feed them and then she brings them downstairs and they hang out in the in the living room with us one of us running around do their own thing and you know depending on what the day is they may go back up after you know morning breakfast and whatnot have another bottle and they take a nap she'll go out and do chores and you know then come back in and uh they may still be sleeping they may be up they may get fed again or they may just run around while she's doing homeschool but if you're going to have bottle babies that's like round the clock care it's just like having a real baby except you can't put diapers on them i mean i guess you could we've done it before it's more of a hassle to keep lambs and goats and things and diapers in the house we just got rid of all the carpet and put hardwood floors down and you have like puppy pee pads in different places and sometimes they go on them sometimes they don't you and we just use old towels that we've gotten at uh you know secondhand stores wipe up the pee use paper towels for the poop and you move on that might not be something and if your spouse is not on board with with those kinds of things that that can be an issue um when you lose animals or when you do everything you can it, it's a mental strain last night um, we we wild woman and i we well all three of us were out doing chores um this is after brady went to work all day comes home she sits down for a good hour we kind of talk about what had happened during the day and what's gonna go on for the evening chores and dinner and whatnot all went out did our different things um I was out doing different chores. When we wild woman got done with her chores, she went in, and, or she goes out and swings up a swing set, listens to music for a little while. It's her kind of, uh, her, her mental um, clarity time. Brandy went inside, but I went and was doing lamb checks, picking up the animals, you know, closing gates, making everybody come in for the night, closing up the chickens. And there was a ewe who start, was starting to go into labor. I text her, and because the sheep don't necessarily like me, the new mommies really don't like me, and uh, she went in, and we walked them in, um, the two of them got the, the the ewe into the barn, and she's like, well, she's she's close, but she's not, you know, they're not presenting too much yet, so we'll give it a little bit, well, you know, we ate dinner, started watching some TV, and she's like, I'm going to go put chickens up and check on that mommy, well, she went out, She'd been gone a while, hadn't heard anything, so I sent we out there. She can get her boots on faster than I can, and then she was gone for a while. And then we texted me to go do finish up some of the chores because there were problems with this ewe. So after about two hours working with her, we lost the lamb because it, the way it had come out, the feet came first, but the head went backwards, so the neck was bending backwards and couldn't come out. Very hard labor, lots of pulling. Um, the lamb basically was, we don't know if it was dead then, but it died coming out. Kind of pulled the legs off, and it's, it's gross. But if she didn't do this and didn't spend that time and have whole hands in, we would have lost the U too. So, you know, that was a really hard mental weight on her that, you know, 
this life was in your hands and you did everything you possibly could and still ended up losing the lamb but to you this morning was still still there she's tired sore she's not getting up but she's alive so she's working on her today while I'm running to Indy um, now is that something you're mentally capable of doing and if not who are you going to call you know, are you going to have a vet come out again it gets pricey are you going to let both of them die because you don't want to get in there and do it you, you can't do it I mean it's, it's something to think about so you know she had a hard time going to sleep because that kind of traumatic and you know, got up this morning and you, you learn from it you move forward and said she had me go out and check on the, the you this morning she's still alive so that's what I messaged back before I left so you know that could be something that, that, that brings you down you know we've lost usually we let the lamb the use lamb out in the pasture and that's more natural except for we've had so much rain we're we're lambing earlier in the year than we normally do so it's colder we didn't get the the use shorn like we normally do so we do that in usually in march so that when in April and May when they're lambing, if it is cold outside, they go into the barn because they're cold too to have the baby. So it's a little extra safeguard to make sure the babies are a little bit more protected. Well, we didn't get them shorn this year because it was early. All of the rain and, you know, even if we were to have them out of the rain, some of these babies can't make it through the amount of mud we have just because we've had... I think in the last 30 days we had over seven inches of rain and it's it's not sinking in the ground is super saturated and we're just it's piling up piling up so even if we wanted to we couldn't have lambs outside but we've had we've lost a bunch of lambs from the the ewes laying on them in the barn um, the lambs go into nurse and ewes get you know are wanting to lay down they just lay on the babies and they crush them they either get smothered or um, you know we're, we're thinking that's what's happening we've lost i don't know at least more, more than five doing this um we've lost a couple for unknown reasons you know uh, this is one of our more trying years for lambs and then you you see all these these little bodies that We've done everything we can, and we don't know what we could have done to prevent it or change it or make it any different. It's just, it's one of the things that happened. So, are you, are you mentally able to deal with those? It's like, oh, yeah, we can deal with it. When you raise these animals from babies and you, you see them, you know, struggling or die, that, it's hard. It's hard to deal with. Um, we were watching Clarkson's Farm. If you guys have never seen it or heard about it, it's on Amazon Prime. It's Jeremy Clarkson, who's from, I don't know, Grand Tour or something. He's British. He went and bought this multi-acre, um, massive farm. Never farmed in his life. And it's him learning as he goes. And learning how hard farmers really have it. Like, 
what does it take to produce, you know, this for that? You know, is it the lamps? Is it the, the whatever? And he, he's 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 definitely being an eye opener to a lot of people who don't understand the struggles that farms really go through. So in in season two, there was a local farmer, and he's trying to gather them all, all these local farms, to open a restaurant of all locally sourced ingredients, and um, she's a dairy farmer. And in the UK, they have tuberculosis really bad in their cattle. And there's no treatment for it, and once the cattle get tuberculosis, they're put down. Even if they're pregnant, even if they have a calf on them, they'll put them down. So, and then the government wants you to be tested every so often for your cows. So this poor woman has lost over half of her herd over the several years. And these are ones that she's raised and her farm's barely hanging on. Like, she hasn't produced any income for herself in two years. And that's just to pay the bills, to pay the feed bills, to pay the taxes, to pay the, the mortgage and things. And, you know, if it wasn't for Jeremy and his shop, she would have gone under. And, you know, that kind of thing, it weighs on you. Farmers have a very high suicide rate when you're... It's one of the only industries that everybody expects you to produce a product for next to nothing and not make any money, but then refuse to pay the prices that it actually is cost to raise something. You know, people want these four ninety nine, you know, or they're more than that now, but you know, the four ninety nine rotisserie chickens that you can get at Sam's or Kroger or Costco. But then when you try to sell them a whole chicken for what it actually costs, not paying yourself anything, what it actually costs for those chickens, they refuse to pay it. But in the same aspect they're screaming, support local farms. Well, you're part of that. If you won't pay the $24, $25 for a whole bird that you, you know, crock pot, rotisserie, beer butt, whatever, yourself, and you're going to go for that $4.99 Kroger, Walmart, whatever chicken, well, that's why farmers are having such a hard time. Because those are factory farm chickens that they are subsidized by the government. They are, you know, they're raised in, you know, not the ideal conditions but people don't see that they don't understand that they don't know what the input cost is they think you just throw a chicken out on the field and it'll feed itself that's not the case that's not how that works yes chickens will self-support them but it's not the bird that they want they want those big breasted chickens the cornish cross which take feed input and if you don't feed input in them they die they have a certain lifespan because they grow so fast that their hearts give out. You know, they're frankenbirds. But nobody sees what it takes to raise those. Nobody wants the, the regular heritage breed birds. You know, milk producers are, are barely skimming by and they don't make money. I mean, a lot of them are not living the lifestyle of the rich and famous that people seem to think. Farming is hard work, and you get very little for what you put in. So, you know, when you go to the store and buy Walmart, Kroger, whatever, where is it? Where's your farm coming from? Where's that produce coming from? Now, I've met 
some kids from local university who came for a tour and had never seen a real chicken. Never seen a live chicken in their lives. So I was like, well, how do you think chicken gets to the store? And they had no clue. They had no clue how a chicken came to be. Where is the chicken nugget part of a chicken is what someone asked. You know, that's where eggs come from. They had no clue. We are so far removed from our from the food that people don't have a clue how hard it is and how much it takes to run a farm. And they think that we're all subsidized by the government. No, us small farmers are not. We can't compete with those big ones that get the government grants and the subsidies. And the subsidies are just, it's what's killing the food industry. And you're getting these mega corporations and mega farms are the ones who get those subsidies, who make money off the taxpayer. Us little farmers don't. So when you see someone saying that it's, you know, $4.99 per live weight for lamb, well, that's outrageous. I can go and buy it somewhere else. You know what? You're, you're, go for it. Because, you know, you say in one breath you want to support us small farmers and, and you love coming out and seeing the animals and how the farms work, but you don't want to support us financially. Are you ready for that as a homestead and a farmer? Because I can I've literally had people come from Starbucks with a Starbucks cup in their hand saying that my $4 dozen in eggs is too much that they can go to Walmart and buy it for $1.99. So how much did you pay for that coffee? You know, an $8 cup of coffee that does not support a single local farm in the U.S. And yet you're going to tell me that my $4 chicken eggs are too much. You know, if this is your if this is your passion, this is what you want to do, you're not going to be in it for the money. You know, you're not going to get rich farming. Uh, I don't know how much to say on that. It, it's, it kind of speaks for itself. You know, don't be disillusioned that you're going to do have a niche market and you bring in money hand over fist by selling medicinal herbs. There's not, you know, your one bunch or two bunches that, you know, you can sell at the farmer's market is not going to pay your bills. The whole farmer's market is another piece. You know, people ask us, why don't we go to the farmer's market? Well, frankly, it's too expensive. You know, not only do you have to have insurance for to participate in the farmer's market, you have to pay to be in the farmer's market. You don't just get a free stand. Almost every farmer's market I've ever seen or known about, you have to pay to be there. Then you have to meet extra levels of inspection from government regulations to participate in a farmer's market. So if you're selling eggs, you have to have an egg license in Indiana, which literally is amounts to nothing other than taking money from you. It's a booklet that tells you how to sell your eggs, how to grade them, nothing about the care of your chickens or marketing, what your label has to be on your egg carts, which you cannot reuse egg carts. So, you know, all these things that go into a farmer's market then to sit there, so you got to figure packing everything up, 
unpacking everything, staging everything, sitting there for however many hours the market is open, taking everything down and then putting things away. So if you're selling, let's say, lettuce, once you cut that lettuce and bring it and put it in there, that lettuce is done. So if you don't sell it, it's gone. It's, it, you can't resell it again the next day. You either have to eat it, like physically eat it for dinner, or it's a waste. So, you know, some of these products that you see at the farmer's market, if somebody doesn't buy it, it's a waste. So I prefer not to do some of those things. Um, you know, we sell meat. You know, lamb, pork, chicken, eggs. And we're not going to go through the inspections and the regulations to sell individual cuts of meat. Because what ends up happening is everybody wants the pork chops, the bacon, and nobody wants some of the off cuts. And so you're stuck with them. You had to pay per pound to have them inspected and processed and visually appealing. And you're left with ham hocks and, you know, kidneys and hearts that nobody wants to buy. So what do you do with those? That's, you have to eat that. So instead of eating that dollar price, you end up charging more for your selected cuts of meat. And then you price point yourself out of a market because people don't want to pay that price for, you know, pork chops when they can go to Walmart, Kroger, wherever. So, I said I wasn't going to be doom and bloom, and I'm going to go back to it and tell you how to be more successful on this. So, first off, start small. Start very small. Provide yourself with, you know, you know chickens are the gateway, but rabbits are even easier. Um, if you're going to do rabbits, you got to be comfortable with butchering and processing your own rabbits. Unless you're going to go into the pet trade or the 4-H trade or the selective breed trade um, and sell live rabbits to people, you got to be comfortable with processing your own rabbits, which is killing them, butchering them, and you know, freezing them or eating them or breaking them down. Something you have to be comfortable with. And if you're going to sell those, know the laws of your area. In Indiana, you can sell... I have to look it up again because we're never on that highest scale, so I never have to look at how many it is. I want to say it's 20,000 birds and 20,000 rabbits per year off of your farm without needing an inspection or uh, licensing. That's if you're selling them off your farm, direct to the consumer, and then there's different wording on whether they're frozen or... Um, chilled. Um, so, you know, can you process your chicken? Can you break a chicken down? Is it to a point where somebody will recognize that those are chicken wings, or are they so badly mangled from the way you process them, nobody knows what they are? Um, you know, do they have to be processed in a commercial kitchen? You know, that's something. Are you a commercial kitchen? So, the easiest thing to start with is if you're going to be more self-sufficient, Start off with, with chickens for eggs, chickens for meat, or rabbits. Easy. Now, I, I focused a lot on, on meat, so I shouldn't all do meat. I mean, there's lots of produce farmers as well. Lettuces and greens are the easiest things to grow. Do you have the space? Do you know how to do it? Do you know how to manage it? Um, you know, like I said, once you harvest it, it's done. So you need to only harvest what you'll sell and not more, but then you have to harvest enough so that you will have sufficient income.
income coming from them. For a while, we were selling direct-to-consumer, off-the-farm bags of fresh lettuce and greens like spinach and kale and mustard and things like that. But we wouldn't sell it or harvest it until somebody was at the farm. And that was you know, stipulated there. We have all these different things. Come to the farm, pick them up. We'll weigh them or you'll get a full bag. and You get to pick and choose what you want. It became too much of a hassle to deal with people on odd hours, not showing up on time, not showing up when they said they were, or, you know, this 20, 30 minute, you know, harvesting would turn into two to three hours, and that's two to three hours you're out of your day, and you weren't making any money because you were losing money because your time is worth something. So, you know, think about those things and, and start small. Don't sink $10,000 into a poultry operation if you're not prepared to go all in on it and you've never done it before. Learn the ropes. Learn with, you know, small scale for your own family. Then start branching out. Branching out to friends. Um, You know, when I say family, I mean your immediate family who lives in your house. And then start branching out to the family that you have. You know, are you interested in, in buying some of these from me? And if family won't buy it from a price, oh, you should give it to me because I'm family. We've had that as well. You know, I'm not going to do that. You don't go to work for free. I'm not going to work for free either. You'll pay this price or I'm not going to just give it to you. You may give the friends and family discount, but you still need to make money on this if this is going to be a business venture of yours. Um, like I said, know the rules and regulations of your partner being on board. Cutting costs, like we found with the, the food bank and making a relationship with them and distilleries, that we're able to cut our feed costs. Um, when we, after COVID and everything and feed prices, and then you had the whole Ukraine issue where fertilizer and some of the chemicals that some of the bigger farms are doing that reduce the feeds, uh, we're raising all the feed costs, we started looking at. Well, I mean, we had already been doing this, but looking more seriously at what can we stop feeding or change the feeding habits so that we're not buying more feed. And one of that was changing our pig breeds um, or getting food from, you know, a non-commercial source. Pig breeds that do well on pasture or forage. Um, We put more time and energy into the sheep and... Um, I guess sheep because I really don't care about the goats anymore. Um, and then the cows now that we have cows um, because they'll eat grass, they'll eat hay, they'll eat grass, they'll eat forage, and we're not buying feed. It's a lot easier to make a capital investment of fencing than it is an expense of buying hay all the time. Um, you know. Fish is something that's fairly easy, but being able to sell fish, there is a immense amount of regulations on selling fish. Now, is it processed? Is it live? Are you transporting it live? Are they picking it up on the farm? Are you handling it? Are you, you know, cutting it up? You know, all these different things around fish. It's, it's a, and then you have different agencies. It's not just USDA. You have DNR. You have all kinds of stuff. So, you know, what are the easiest things to manage and input? Uh, 
selling. So what can you get at a lower price and put a little bit of time and effort into it to make it more valuable? Um, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the things like, you know, jams, jellies, canned goods, um, applesauces and those kinds of things. You can buy in bulk and process it and sell them for more. You can do maple syrups or black walnut syrups or shag bark hickory syrups or birch bark syrups. You know, there's other things besides livestock and um, animal products. Animals are the livestock or vegetables and produce that you can do. One of the problems I see with, with us doing produce and everything is you don't know what the weather's going to be. And you're so dependent on weather for... Um, your outcome as as produce and, and vegetables and things. So if you have a drought, if you have a freak snowstorm or a cold snap, that can be detrimental to your your, your crops and things. Um, but then again, with livestock, you can get a disease or something that goes through and wipes out your entire uh, group, flock, herd, whatever you want to call them. Um, no, I thought I was going to have more points about being successful and, and making this as a win. Um, but planning things out and starting small is one of the key things that I can I can tell you to do. Um, wild harvesting is one thing that you can you can make money on without sinking a lot into it. Um, and like I said, maple syrup things harvesting wild um, edibles, blackberries, black raspberries. Um, there's other berries that are out there that you can harvest and sell. Um, you can make, do different medicinals out of uh, wild harvest of stuff. Mushrooms, at least in Indiana, if you wild harvest mushrooms, you have to have them inspected before you can sell them by somebody who is certified through the state. So, you know, if you're selling morels, you're supposed to be, have them inspected and certified by somebody who knows what they are. So that's to prevent somebody from selling poisonous mushrooms or, you know, ones that are toxic. Maybe not kill you, but make you wish you were dead from the GI tract issues. Um, you know... Here's an example. It may not be homesteading, but it is a way to make money with not a lot of investment. Is selling firewood. We have a deal with a tree trimmer that comes and drops off logs on our property, and we cut and split it. We could sell it, but right now we're using it all for our own uses. But that's something that you could do if you have the availability. Um, it's just your time and energy put into it, but then again, a lot of people want firewood delivered, and they only want to pay a certain amount, and, you know, it has to be seasoned, so, or they only want certain species of wood, so that's some learning curve as well. Um, now, here is something that we've been toying with, and we kind of do this, but I'm putting it out to other people so that they may do it. If you have land, and maybe you don't have the time or the ability or knowledge necessarily run your farm operations but you wouldn't be opposed to somebody else leasing a part of it maybe it's a a vegetable garden maybe it's somebody running a chicken operation or something 
do that. Make a contract with them. You have the land. They get to, you know, use a portion. Maybe you get some of the, the proceeds from that. Maybe you... It's a financial thing. Um, I created a Facebook specifically for this. It's called The Place to Roam for Indiana. And that is where people may have a situation where they want uh, a 40 by 100 foot space of land, but they live in an apartment. They're willing to share some of the produce if you're willing to let them use the land. You know, it, it's creating partnerships and connecting people like that. Um, here's another one, and this comes into kind of tricky because I think Indiana has laws on the, the composting. I'm not 100% sure what the details are because there was at one time for selling commercial compost you had to be inspected you have to have all these kinds of you know liners so that it can't get into the soil but i have a group called um got poop indiana and all these groups i run i don't get paid for them but it's about making connections with people there are so many farms horse farms dairy barns um you know, all these places that clean out their farms and just pile their poop in windrows, if you were able to go get that and then compost it, there's tons of gardeners who want composted manure for their gardens. They either A, don't have the ability to transport it, or B, don't know where to find it. So if you had, let's say, a, um, a dump bed trailer and maybe a bobcat, you could go to these farms pick up all of this waste, put it in your, your dump bed. I mean, you might have to make two trips, but a lot of them are willing to give it to you for free or sometimes pay to get rid of it because it piles up on them. Bring it back to your place and turn it and age it and, you know, let it decompose and then turn around and sell that by the dump truck load. So, or, you know, trailer load, whatever. But there's a way, I mean, there's always going to be a way to bring some income in. It just depends on how much you want to be motivated by it. So if you're currently working a 9-to-5 job, what can you fit in in the hour to two hours that you have in the evenings or on the weekends? Because, you know, livestock get out while you're at work, what's going to happen? So that means you've got to have extra strong fence or not. livestock's not for you. Um you know, some of those kinds of considerations, but you can do it. So I usually give a questionnaire to people uh, before I even start consulting with them. And it's, I don't know, 30 questions or something. And it's called points to consider. So before you start any of these operations or farming or homesteading, you know, how much time can you dedicate to it? And, and you really have to be realistic. Whatever people say they're willing to dedicate I usually cut that by half because they may say they're willing to put in four to five hours every evening and then weekends. Well, then, you know, Timmy has baseball or you got to go grocery shopping or you had to work late this evening or, you know, you're in, you know, volleyball sports so you can't do it every evening. So it's not that they lie. They, they have the intention of doing it, but life gets in the way and, you know, that's not realistic. They're really not going to spend that much time you know, doing this endeavor. So, you know, that's one of the questions. The question, another question is, how long do you plan on being at this property that you want me to help you develop? And 
if it's you know under five years or under ten years, that's something you need to consider. How much money are you going to invest, or how much infrastructure are you going to put in? If you know you're going to leave, you're going to retire, you're going to go to a bigger farm, or you're going to go do something else, in you know this isn't your permanent forever location, then why invest? $50,000 in a certain operation if you're not going to be there that long. So you need to think about those things and save yourself some energy, time, and money before you even get into it. Um, you know, Where is your knowledge base? Do you have any experience with livestock? Do you have any experience with, with gardening? Um, when I was a kid, my mother grew a garden and I was kind of out there piddling and doing whatever. I didn't really help too much with it. And then that was ooh, that was when I was 6 to 10 maybe. Then from that point forward, we lived in different places where we didn't have a garden. California, Ohio, you know, we didn't have gardens anymore. And so I didn't develop those skill sets. And up until my 20s, maybe even 30s, I did not know anything about gardening, farming, ranching, livestock. I was a novice. So, you know, I didn't grow up on a farm. I didn't grow up around livestock. I didn't grow up, you know, doing some of these homesteading things. It was all learned stuff in my adult years. Um, if you don't have that knowledge that you weren't grown up on a farm, you didn't grow up around this, who can mentor you? Find a mentor, whatever you feel that you're interested in. And Offer to help with their operations. Not that you want to get paid, but just offer to help. And, uh, you know, people have offered all the times to come help with us. And as much as I want to, I'd rather educate them without helping because there's certain ways I want things done. And if you don't do them the way I want, I'm going to have to go back and do them anyway. So that's two times the work. One for me to show you how to do it, then to go back and correct what you did. But if somebody wanted to come hang out on the farm for two to three hours, ask questions, see what we do, see how we learn stuff, I'm okay with that. But I, I don't necessarily want someone to help because it's not helping. It's, it's taking more energy out of me. But find you a mentor. Darby was phenomenal, and he gave me all kinds of help. Now, I helped him. He, it was more of a, hey, do you want to come help me stretch fence? I don't know anything about fence. Okay. I learned, and I learned a lot on stretching fence. His particular fence, not the fences that we use. It works for his operation. He ran um, cows and pigs. Will not run, work for us because that particular setup did not work for how our farm is set up. He didn't do goats and sheep. He didn't want to do those. That's fine. I like goats and sheep. Well, I don't like goats. I like sheep. I didn't want to do pigs because pigs smell, and you know, even though his operations were in the woods and pasture and whatnot, they stink. Now, and I, they don't stink depending on how you manage them. Um, you know, he had a lot of pigs, but he was also feeding pig feed every day. You know, they did get acorns and in the, in, but there were no grass in their area. There was, you know, a giant mud pit. From where they trample and wallow and they will find ways to disturb the water so they get mud pits 
Anyway, we're not going to go to things. Um, but I learned so much from helping him, and I would ask questions while we're, we're going along the way. And as he got more comfortable with me, he asked me to start farm sitting while he and his wife were doing the farm markings. They actually ran two, uh, two different farmer's markets at the same time on the same day. That meant nobody was home to do the farm chores. So I'd get up on Saturday mornings and go in and go move his chickens, feed the chickens, water the chickens, uh, feed the pigs. Sometimes he usually had the pigs taken care of, but sometimes I had to. He hadn't got around to it. Um, sometimes it was move the cows because he specifically wanted to move the cows at two o'clock in the afternoon, and you know I would have to time things by that. And, you know, sometimes he was done at the farmer's market. Or he wanted the chickens moved first thing in the morning. Um, because when you try to move the chickens in the middle of the day, it's too hot. Or they've gone too long without water, so they end up dying. So, you know, there was all kinds of things to consider. But he trusted me enough to do certain operations on his farm. And, you know, he brought me in for um, chicken catching day. That sucked. <laughs> but it was something I learned. So he ran chickens and tractors and quite a few chickens and they, he ran Cornish Cross and they stunk and they pooped all over you and you got to put them in crates to take for chicken processing because he didn't do it on his farm. He had to do it the night before, load them all up and sometimes we worked till midnight putting these chickens in crates and then he would load them up at like four o'clock in the morning to take to the processor and then they would process them and you have to go pick them up in a couple of days. And then, you know, that was a, a certain fee for the processor. I, I want to say I think they were like five bucks or six bucks a chicken or something like that. I don't remember. Um, but I'm like, well, why don't you have, you know, I'm trying to get, you know, my mind of thinking of Six Sigma and making things more sure. Why don't you process them? He's like, I don't have time for that, nor am I set up for it, nor do I want to do it. Then I learned about mobile processors. I'm like, hey what if a mobile processor would come to you? He's like, oh, I'd pay more than what I'm currently taking them for. That's what it was. They were $3 a bird for processing. And he was willing to pay 4 to $5 processing per bird if they were willing to come on his farm and do it. So he was willing to pay more per bird because the fact of helping, you know, putting the chickens in gathering them up, taking them down there, bringing them back, getting all the crates together. It was a pain. And, you know, that's a hassle that he didn't want to have to deal with. So, you know, that was one aspect. And, you know, he did pay me per se and for some of the work, and that was he paid me in meat. Um, at the time, you know, we were living in, in suburbia, and, you know, he paid me with chicken frames or a couple of brats or this and that. It wasn't the prime cuts that he was, you know, the pork chops and the, the things like this. It was the, the lesser quality stuff that didn't move as well that he would pay me in. And you know what? I valued the knowledge I got from him more than I valued the meat. I, you know, I was willing to take it because free meat's free meat. We take those chicken frames or whatever and make chicken stock or even with the frames which is after they've taken the breast the drums the wings and all that it's what's left the rib meat the back meat you know some of those kinds of things and you put them in a stock pot and you you cook it 
there's still enough meat to make, you know, a batch of chicken soup or chicken quesadillas or shredded chicken for, for different things. So there was meat on there. I wasn't going to pick it all off the bone. But, you know, you got the chicken stock plus the, the meat for different things. It was worth it. Um, so find you a mentor, you know. We didn't have a mentor necessarily on, well, we kind of did on, for sheep. Um, we had a couple of, uh, we call them the aunties, who were raising sheep and things. And we learned a lot from them, but we learned more from Sandy Brock and Sheepishly Me. We got our feet wet at some of the things that the aunties, they're, they're not really our aunts. They were older women who were doing the farming and homesteading and who were kind of surrogate family, even though they weren't related. And they, they took us under their wing and taught us and mentored us on a lot of things that we just didn't know. And so they mentored us. Um, we had a local woman, Heather, who taught us about different things for some of the goats that we didn't know and she we had our first goat birth on the farm and she drove over when we were having problems and she got all in the goo and made sure that we everything was okay and you know we were so concerned that something was going on something was wrong and there wasn't it's just we were novices and knew find you somebody who can do that and you know what you may have to pay them for this um you know depending on what we're who it is and what we're working with there may be a fee for us for mentoring or farm tours. Sometimes it's not. It, it just depends on what fits into our schedule and what are the people looking for. We really like getting people, getting their feet wet and understanding before they get in. So that's more valuable than the money. That passing some of our knowledge on and saying, hey, these are things to look out. This is what we do. This is how we do it. And let them ask questions and Sometimes they get into it, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they realize this is not what I thought at all. This is not something I want to do. So, you know, get you a mentor and, and learn from them. And if that's gardening, find you a gardener. Go join the Master Gardeners group if you have that in your area. Those people love to talk about gardening. Sometimes it's it's production gardening. Sometimes it's, it's not. It's usually retired folks who picking up a hobby of gardening and something for them to keep them active and busy. Um, there's 4-H. You know, even if you don't have kids, 4-H is a great place to learn. And we were going to 4-H meetings even though our kids weren't doing some of those particular projects. Why? Because it's a wealth of knowledge. And sometimes these groups are led by the kids. So it gives the kids like all kinds of um, confidence and empowering that these adults are coming to listen to what they have to say for their presentations. So the president of the Goat Club, who was in our area, she's now working on being a vet. And I loved going and listening to her talk about presentations and things. And, you know, commended her on her speaking abilities. She's now a judge for the 4-H because she aged out. She'd done her 10 years. Um... She worked at the vet's clinic, so it was cool to see her there when we would go in. But, you know, go there. You'll learn all kinds of stuff about the species, the problems, feeding. I mean, you'll learn stuff about showing. And if that's not what you're into, you know, you kind of skip over some of those meetings. But go to the parasite meetings. Go to the nutrition meetings. Go to those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, 
maybe you buy something for them if they're selling anything, or give them a donation for showing up and being that that source. They won't turn it down. They'll be very appreciative of it. Um, they're not going to ask for it, but if you volunteer it, go for it. Um, let's see. What are some other things that be more successful? Um, you know, if you think that you're going to sell it at the farmer's market, go to the farmer's market a couple times. Support those farmers who are there now and talk to them. Become friends with them. Sit with them. Say, hey, can I help you? I don't want anything with your return. I just kind of want to see how things go. I'm thinking about doing it. And, you know, I'd like to learn. Would you mind if I, I sat here with you? I don't want to take up your time. I don't want to distract you. I just want to kind of observe and maybe ask questions when there's no customers here. And a lot of times you'll learn. Um, I went and sat at Darby's Farmer's Market a couple times um, with him and learned. And sat and talked while he didn't have customers. Learned how the marketing went. Learned how to talk to customers. Learned what customers were looking for. And then I talked to other vendors. So if he was busy with a customer, I might talk to the, the person next to him or across the way. Learn what they do, what they sell. Um, go to farm tours. There's a lot of people who like farm tours, who like to have people come and do farm tours. Some are free, some are not. Always ask if it's okay. Always be respectful of their protocols. Like, you know, you need to wash your shoes. You can't be on any other farm. You need to keep this far back. You only can come on these times. And be respectful of their time. If they offer you something that maybe you would be interested in buying, buy it. Because that helps them. If there's, you know, don't expect this for free. They're giving you time, knowledge, and their time is valuable. So, you know, be that offering. Or, if you really like their their setup and their products and everything, please, by all means, tell other people about it. You know, word of mouth is so great that, you know, it's, it's advertising that you can't buy as a, a farmer or a producer. So... You know, I'll recommend all kinds of people's products and farms because I know them, I know their operations, I know how they do it, and I want them to be successful. I gotta pause because I'm going into the house and I gotta open up the gate. So I'll be back in a second. And I'm back. Oops, gotta put it in gear. Um, so as I'm driving up, I'm seeing the, the sheep out there, and why we got into sheep was for wool. When we first started this, one of the aunties said we should get into sheep because there's the fiber event, which was like a couple of miles from our farm, that we could sell all the fiber. Now, a lot of what we didn't know is ignorance. We didn't know. We just thought, oh, we'll shear the sheep and we'll, we'll sell the wool and we'll make money and this and that. Well, here's the problem. We didn't know our market. We assumed they would buy different things straight from, you know, the farm. That's not what it is. So had we visited the fiber event and actually seen what people are selling and what they want, um, what customers are buying, who's got the, the more popular stands, I don't know that we would have done sheep. I love the sheep. I love the wool. I love all the things about the sheep. But we don't market the, sheep, the wool like we used to, and it wasn't as profitable. We don't attend the, the uh, fiber event anymore because people don't want raw wool at the, those events. They want processed, refined, ready-to-use wool. So it was mainly for crafters and spinners and crochet and these kinds of things. 
that's not what we sell. And we weren't going to put the money into processing all of this wool. And then if it doesn't sell, we're out all that money. So, you know, learn your market. Learn if that's something that you want to do or you think you might want to do. Go to different, you know, farmer's markets. Go to different restaurants and talk. Like, you have to go to small restaurants. You can't go to a Chili's or an Applebee's and expect to sell pork to them. That's not where they buy it from. You'll need to go to a mom-and-pop local place, and usually it's with a chef, not with a cook. So if it's a a, a diner, typically they're not going to want your specialty-raised pork or anything like this, or grass-fed beef. You're going to want to go to somewhere that has a chef that is designed, that has a palate, that will know the difference between some of these things of quality and what you put into it and the value of it. Um, but like the wool, we should have known what we were getting into. And, you know, now we sell it raw wool, but we don't sell it to those fiber arts spinners. Now, if they want to process it and do whatever, great. We're not going to put that money to it. We have somebody traveling from Ohio um, this weekend to come buy our, our wool, raw wool. And it's because it's you know, it's cheap and she wants to do it from the start to the finish. That's great. That's kudos to her, but it's a lot of work because we've done it. And every step that you take to processing wool adds to the value on it, but also costs money if you're not going to do it yourself. And doing it yourself costs the time. Could that time be better spent doing something else? Um, and make more money doing either off the farm, you know, as a job or, on the farm doing various projects and things. So what's your time worth? Um, if you're selling, if you're thinking of selling at a farmer's market, visit three or four. What are you planning on doing at the farmer's market? Is it herbs? Is it jams and jellies? Is it meat? Talk to those vendors. And some may be standoffs. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be competition. Maybe you go to markets that are not in your area. You know, couple of counties over or you know if you visit another state on vacation maybe see if there's any farmers markets there but talk to them when you say I'm not I'm interested I'm not from this area I'd like to do something in my area they'll know that they're you're not going to be competition for them and maybe they'll talk to you maybe they won't all you is going to risk is you know them saying no it's not like they're going to charge you a fee or maybe they will um Maybe you offer, like, hey, you know, I'm interested. Can I buy some stuff off you and maybe talk a little bit more about your operation? Or you buy it up front and then talk to them. Um, sometimes they like to tell their story of, of their product. They have pride in it, and they want to share that with you. Some people are not. It's like, here's your beef. See you later. And they, they got other things to do. They're there to make the sale. Sometimes it's not even the farmer who's there. It's somebody they've hired because they're back at the farm or they're maybe they're at another farmer's market like Darby did. He ran too. Um, so maybe it's a hired hand because he used to hire people just to go sit at the market and sell the product. Um, sometimes they can answer the questions. Sometimes they couldn't. And never allow someone to answer a question if they don't know the answer. Always tell people if they're sitting at your market, say, you know what, I don't know, I'm, I was hired by the farmer, I can tell you these things that I do know, but I don't know that. Um, you can reach out to them on their website or their Facebook page, and there's a place where you can ask. Never let them answer something for you that you haven't told them or they don't know firsthand. So, And be sure to tell them that. 
Um, otherwise, they'll assume that you do it this way, and you may not. And, you know, that interaction with the customer will be lasting. I mean, there's so many other things I can go to that it, it, it's nickel and dime here and there of how you can make money off of your homestead. You know, selling chicken feathers that are really cool in color. Or chicken feet for, you know, dog treats or whatever. Um, you know, different things like that. People do buy, but you have to find the market. You have to find the right customer. So until you identify who your customers are, it's hard to sell a product. I could have, you know, most pristine um, merino wool or rambouillet is what the U.S. has. Um, and those are the same type of wool, but merino is from Australia. Rambouillet is from here. Um, it's great. It's clean. We jack them. We keep it all this. But if there's not a market in my area for it, I'm not going to sell it. So you got to find what's the market, and you won't know that until you get out there and start asking questions and doing investigation. So if you're interested in selling chicken eggs, okay, great. Chicken eggs went up in price for a while. What goes better? A lot of people want the brown or green eggs from, you know, homesteads and, and farms. Some people want the white ones. Some people don't care because there's really no difference in the green, red, you know, pink, chocolate colored or in white eggs um you know that's something and, and chickens start slowing down in the winter so you know are you going to be able to keep up with production do you need to have more chickens back um to compensate for that um some people like duck eggs but duck eggs are seasonal they don't lay year round um you know there, there's all kinds of markets for different things that are at different times but you need to learn what's marketable, what people want, and the only way to do that is doing market research. And you have to be your own, um, like I said, with all the different hats you have to wear, you have to be your own market research. I mean, you could pay somebody, but it, how, are you going to trust their information? How good is the information? Like, you know, oh crap, I think the sheep got out. I got to go look at that in a minute. Um, but what's the market like everybody wants elderberry um cuttings right now well elderberries are coming up and elderberries are super easy to propagate um they're wild um as well so you basically take a trimming off an of elderberry and stick it in the ground it's going to grow that that it's almost that simple and we had some last year that i inadvertently cut down with the weed whacker and so i just threw them in the aquaponics through some grates that we had thinking that they would be supported well they didn't they ended up falling into the water and i said forget it i go in there this year so they've been sitting all winter and now all of those cuttings that i put in the water have multiple starts on them so every node so where a branch would be has got new leaves and roots coming out so i took a three foot section of um elderberry and that turned into like seven plants so super easy, blackberries, black raspberries, you know, all these different things that are easy to propagate. There's a market for it, but you got to find that market. Anyway, hopefully I went from doom and gloom to turn some things around. Um, you know what? I think I might want to do a whole podcast on the different hats farmers have to wear. I think that's a good one. I might do that for the next time. i got to go to Indy on Friday, so... If you listen to this between now and Friday, that'll probably be my podcast. 
since I'll be alone again because we Wild Women's on uh, Lamb Watch every two hours and she will be uh, feeding the babies while I'm gone. Anyway, I'm Fat Man Farmer. I will talk to you next time.